You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You've, you've spent some time, I guess, with uh, uh, the, the Jersey stuff the last couple years. People have asked about your childhood with Chris Woodward. And, and the connection you guys had, you've talked a little bit about it, but what what was Michael Young like as a kid, not only from an athletic perspective, but just, I guess, a general personality perspective? Oh, my goodness. Um, as a kid, you know, it, I, I was probably a lot different than I am now, whereas Woody is very, very similar to what he is now. So I was uh, really, really a cocky little kid. I had this uh, a coach who, looking back, was a, was a fantastic coach, but... I remember uh, he kind of encouraged all the players to be really, really cocky. So between the ages of 8 to about 13, I had the same coach every year, and I thought I was just doing what my coach asked me to do. Meanwhile, I was probably annoying every single person that I came into contact with on, a, on an athletic field or an ath- inside of a basketball court or a football field or a baseball field. So um, I was a little different, and I kind of had a little bit of that to me all the way through I went into college. In my freshman year, I just got this massive rude awakening about, you know, it wasn't really flying with other people, especially people who I was just meeting for the first time. And I think by the time I left college, I was a completely different human being. So, um, you know, if you've heard those stories from Woody, cause he's really, really happy to tell stories about what a <laughs> punk I was when I was a kid, it is really, really spot on. And, um, you know, if I can go back, I would, I would change a couple of things, but at the same time, that's kind of the path that people are on in order to become the people that they, they ultimately end up being. So, uh, that was just a, a small part of mine. If you don't mind me asking, what what was the rude awakening? Was it like a conversation with a teammate or a coach? Do you remember what that moment yeah, was? Just, just a ton of teammates, really. And I they're probably just getting tired of me walking around and talking about how good I was. When matter of fact, to be totally honest, by the time when I was a freshman in college, I really wasn't that good. So um, you know, it was one of those things. I'm sure there was just a ton of insecurity at the time. Usually, when people are talking about how good they are, it's, it's usually some deep seated issue about they really don't. Uh, uh, they don't believe they are at the time. I was always very, very confident about what I'd eventually become. But I think, you know, as, I'm, as a college freshman, when you're trying to, you know, really kind of, you know, become a starter and um, kind of have three years to really make the most of that and it's not going the way you want it to go, uh, it kind of manifests itself in, in certain ways. And for me, that was me talking more, playing worse. And that's generally a pretty bad combination. <laughs> well, I, what were the things when you were like eight years old and you were encouraged to be cocky? Like, what what were the things that you would do? Would you just like go around and like talk a lot of crap to people, or like? How- oh yeah, okay, hundred percent. So you would just uh, let the, people uh, know that. Field, yeah, yeah. I was just looking looking back. I mean, there were so many things I wish I wouldn't have done. That, um, you know, when I when I got in my big league career, and um, I was even though you know the person who you are as a kid really is a, a distant memory. It really it does, does have a bit of a driving force in your subconscious about who you ultimately end up becoming. And uh, when it came to my relationship with my career and with the game and the things I really valued most about being a baseball player, I think a lot of the lessons I learned when I was super, super young had a lot to do with um, how I you know, ended up conducting myself on the field. 
Did you, I know you to be someone who, who cares about the way you treat people. And I think like a lot of that, maybe you, you grow into that as you get older, but I, I do think in a lot of ways that that's kind of at the core of someone. So when you had that realization, did you think back to relationships you had prior to that and, and try and, or, or, or I guess investigate whether you needed to make amends or did you address anything from high school or, or prior once you had that wake up call? Well, yeah, I think, I don't think I was a, I was a bad person. I think a lot of people who got, who knew me, even Woody was one of them. We were really, really good friends when we were young, even though he kind of knew that my personality had some probably annoying quirks to it at the time. But I think that people who I knew me the best, you know, I didn't feel like I had to really kind of do anything like that. They just kind of knew that was kind of something that they dealt with with me, you know, it was nonstop, you know, getting super, super chippy. And <laughs> I'm sure it got annoying, but I mean, at the same time that, you know, I was still, you know, raised by two really, really good parents, and um, I'm sure the majority of the time, you know, their example was coming forth rather than my own, you know, uh, insecurities about who I was as a, as an athlete. All right, I also know you to be someone who's got a, a lot of interests. Uh, you're, you know, from a, uh, I guess, a hobby standpoint, multidimensional. It, it, were you always like that growing up, or, or how did that develop? Uh, to where you know you weren't just a guy who was all sports, 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 but you you really did take time to enjoy other things and other parts of life. Yeah, I would say that no. When I, when I was a kid, it was it was family and baseball. That's pretty much what my life was. Um, I played other sports, but I played those sports for fun. Um, I played them because I enjoyed being around other guys. I enjoyed you know what those other sports were were about i enjoyed playing basketball and football and soccer as a kid but baseball was my first love it was really what I, all i ever really wanted to do and you know from this time i picked up a baseball and, and threw a baseball to you know leaving college starting the minor leagues it was still very very consistent that was really all my life was and um i would say you know once you kind of you know i uh, my family started to grow um uh, we kind of settled down roots here in texas and all of a sudden you get the you know foundational things that were kind of set then it's kind of easy, I think, easier, I think, for people to kind of, you know, you know, expand themselves a little bit and see what other things start to uh, start to kind of peak in interest, especially when you kind of see that your career is maybe on the, uh, you know, age-wise, you know, you're no longer 18 years old, especially when you're in your late 30s and you start seeing seeing what people mean when they say that you're going to be a, a former player, a former player, a lot longer than you're a current player, and you kind of start seeing the writing on the wall and seeing what's ahead of you. It's you know, it's easy at that point to kind of, yeah. You know, see what the what the future holds. Um, okay, so one of the things that you and I talk a lot about are just like sports in general, and and I know uh, your Lakers fandom is not a new thing, and and you you know as you mentioned, you were you were a sports guy growing up. What what are some of your favorite sports memories as a kid? Oh yeah, uh, man, um, Dodgers would be the first one. Is Fernando Mania? Uh, all the way up to Kirk Gibson's home run when I was, you know, 12 years old, 1988. Um, that was my favorite team growing up. I have no really memories of the Angels. I wasn't an Angel fan. I really wasn't much of a, of a fan of the Orange County team, to be honest with you. Um, but I was, uh, you know, when Wayne Gretzky came to the Kings, uh, they already had Luke Robitaille in place, and that kind of, like, jacked up my, my Kings fandom. Uh, huge Raider fan when I was when I was a kid, and then obviously with baseball being my favorite sport, and Bo Jackson's our starting tailback. Uh, I mean that just made me love the Raiders even more. Uh, but the Lakers were were my favorite team, uh, my favorite sports team growing up, just because you know, shoot man, when they uh, you know the first time they played the Celtics 
1984, you know, I was seven years old, and that was the first time that I remember being just heartbroken that the first time they lost to the Celtics in the finals, and they came back the next year and kind of got a little bit of revenge in 1987, ended up uh, taking the trilogy from them. But that was the first time I really kind of saw a different sport that I was just truly was a fan. You know what I mean? I guess with baseball, it's, um, you know, I always kind of watch the game in a different way because I envision myself actually doing it. You know what I mean? Like that's, I, I saw baseball differently from a very, very young age and I, I still do. But with basketball and football and these sports, it was really cool to watch it because I just completely removed myself from it. Again, even at a really, really young age, just, it just really got lost in being a fan because I knew that that level was something I was never going to be able to do. So it was easy to just kind of lose myself in, in, in being a, a really pure fan. You, I think I texted you this recently that I, I went back and I watched the 1988 Western Conference Finals, the Lakers and the Mavericks. And for me... As a Mavericks fan, my first, second, third memories growing up were of this doormat of the NBA. And, uh, you know, if they won a game, it was like a huge deal. Not that they, you know, they'd win, you know, around 20 games or so. But if I got to go to a game that they actually won, it was awesome. And so when I first learned, I must have been five or six years old, that my team almost took down the Lakers in 88. It was like, it was mind blowing. And I've always heard about that era and, and that team, but I finally went back and I watched it. Uh, and yeah. I'm just curious, just cause I haven't really talked to a Lakers fan about it. Do you remember that series specifically? Do you remember the, the Lakers Mavs matchup or does it just kind of all blend together? No, hell yeah. I remember that 88. Um, that's, the Lakers were right in the middle of making their run for the repeat. They had beaten the Celtics in '87, um, and they're I think the the bad boys are waiting for them in the finals um, in '88. Um, you know the Lakers were peak Lakers at that point. I think I think Magic came off again. I'm a I love basketball, man. Magic came off winning the MVP in '87 after Larry Bird won three in a row from '84, '85, '86. I think '88 I think was the first year that Jordan actually won it. Um, and then Magic came back and won the MVP, I think, in 89 and 90. But the that was peak Showtime Lakers right there. I think that was the last, the last championship they won in 87. That was probably the best team they ever had when they beat the Celtics. Um, again, uh, that was basically taking two out of three. So when they played the Mavs in 88, that was, that was the last championship the Lakers won, uh, won in the Showtime era, but that was, that was peak, peak Showtime Lakers right there, man. They went to the finals. They won, the, won in 88 lost in 89 but they still went back to the finals so um for for the Mavs to take them get to the western conference conference finals and play a team like that i mean just shows that what a hell of a run the Mavs actually had i will say it was it was fun i knew that you know the 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 era the 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 style of play back then in that era was way different but there were there were there were several times when all 10 guys were inside the perimeter oh yeah no spacing at all that just no yeah that (laughs) never happens at all now it was uh, was pretty crazy yeah, now they're spaced pretty much from once you pass half court. They're spaced from every <laughs> yeah. point of half court. That's what the spacing yeah. is nowadays. All right, I I, I want to kind of move ahead uh, to your time as a player, uh, and and I want to go to to 2010 that that first year. And I know that your career there was so much that happened before then, but uh, I I want to say I heard someone tell this story, and it might have been you, it might have been someone else that. When you guys had to go back to Tampa for Game 5 of the ALDS and Cliff Lee was pitching that 
He walked into the clubhouse before the game and just kind of looked around and said, we're good. And it just calmed everyone in the clubhouse. I don't remember if it was you that said that or maybe David Murphy. But but what do you remember about just the having a guy like Cliff Lee who was as good as he was? Good. I'm sorry. My, my son's banging on the piano right now. Go ahead. <laughs> You're good. What do you remember about Cliff Lee and, and just what he did and the way he was able to just kind of take command of games during that postseason run? So, yeah, that story is exactly true. I remember we were um... – we had just, you know, it was it was a really weird moment because we we went to Tampa, we won the first two games out there, and then uh, we dropped two at home, which was just that sucked, man. We wanted to give our fans an opportunity to celebrate with us. Uh, we had clinched the division on the road, um, so we wanted to give our fans a chance to celebrate with us. And sure enough, you know that really, really, really tough Tampa team um, took two back at our place. So heading back to Tampa, we we kind of we were pissed. We weren't really happy to be on that on that flight, and we got to the park, and we were still, you know, at this point too, that that series is getting a little chippy, and um, you know, there were a couple of things we we really wanted to get out there, and we were, I, I would say, we were kind of super, uh, we were a little bit of, uh, we were a little emotional at that point, you know, we we wanted to take it to that team, we wanted to wrap it up, and we wanted to get going with the rest of the postseason. Sure enough, you know, um, during ball games, whether it's the postseason or otherwise. The starting pitcher is usually the last one to show up. And in playoff series, I think position players get to the field even earlier than they usually do. So we had probably about a 7 or 8 o'clock game, and we probably all got there around 1 o'clock, and we're just hanging around the clubhouse doing what we usually do. And sure enough, right around, I would say, 4, 4.30, you know, Cliff strolls in, and we're kind of eyeballing him a little bit, and uh, goes to his locker, takes off his watch, kind of turns around, and we're trying not to stare at him, even though we all kind of are. We're kind of fish-eyeing him a little bit. He turns around. And he just goes, "We're good," and like you could feel like the collective breath was just like, "We are good." And the way he said it, and the, and you know, we knew he meant it. We knew he was he was ready for the moment, and um, we went out there and took care of business. But it was just a really really good lesson. You hear about it all the time about how starting pitching is so important in postseason series, and that was the first time I really saw what people meant. You know, those are really the only guys in the field that can take over a game and make it impossible for the other team to do anything. Position players really can't do that. You can have a big game and you can have your big moments, but even if you go out there and, you know, have a basis clearing double, you still have to wait eight more turns before you get back up there. You know, starting pitchers can really go out there and just, you know, impose their will on ball games um if they're up to it. And Cliff definitely was that entire postseason. What is that like? I, I guess I've never asked anyone this. When you're hitting well and you just you're in one of those phases where you just you want to be in the box every moment you can but you have to wait a couple innings sometimes is that like I don't know I, I don't know if you've ever even taken time to yeah. really think about it. is that just like maddening while you're you're standing in there in the dugout waiting not if you're playing defense it, it makes it fun you know what I mean because that's what makes baseball such a great sport and people who love who love baseball love every aspect of it and gives you an opportunity to go out there and now make an impact on the defensive end and, um, that part of it makes it makes it super fun but that goes to show you really what especially offensively baseball truly is a, a huge team sport um you're relying on every guy next to you and he's relying on you to for you to do your job well so that he can do his well everyone is super interconnected and um the really really great teams and and you know that's what we all we're all after out there is to go out there and win um they have depth and they have talent and they have you know everything they have spirit they got fight and 
those really good teams seem to really feed off each other because, like you said, I mean, you have to wait. You can't go in there and do your thing, so you're really dependent on the guy next to you to do his job. All right, so later on that postseason, you guys beat the Yankees and go to the World Series, and in that decisive Game 6, I went back and I watched that recently, and Vladimir Guerrero had a huge hit, uh, a a part of a, a big inning, I think it was the fifth inning, maybe the sixth, that that helped you guys clinch the series. And I just, I, I, I kind of was thinking, man, I can't believe that guy played for my team because I remember young Vladdy back when he could do everything before the the turf in Montreal kind of wrecked his knees, and and not many people talked about him because it was Montreal and it, you know it was Canada. They weren't that good, and then uh, you know he he obviously tormented the Rangers while he was with the Angels, but like. I, was there a guy you ever played with who you're like you, you took a step back and and you were a fan and you're like wow like that guy's my teammate maybe it was someone you grew up watching or I, I someone you just admired from afar. That's a great question. Um, you know, Vladdy would definitely fit that bill. Um, you know, and it's interesting too. You know, I think a lot of times the recollection that people have of players is who they are when their last memory of them. You know, when I think of Vladdy, I don't think of the guy he was, even with us, I think of the guy from Montreal. That's the guy I think of when I think of Vladimir Guerrero. That's who he was. And, you know, it's not his fault that, you know, Turf just absolutely did a number on his knees and his legs. And it's not his fault. You know, he went out there and played with, with uh, under the circumstances that were presented to him. But, yeah, I mean, that's that was, it was, the timing couldn't have been more perfect with Vlad. Um, you know, I played with a ton of talented players, man, and um, obviously, he's a Hall of Famer. He's a he's a hell of a player, and the career he had up until that point was already on a Hall of Fame track. You know, for us, I think he only played a couple more years after he played with us uh, in that on that team. And um, you know, it's just a, a thrill to play with him. It's really difficult to sit there and single out who else I, that I was thrilled to play with because a lot of times it was guys who were older than me when I was just a young kid. Um, but I mean, Vladdy definitely tops tops the list because of the, like again because of the circumstances because he was with the team that was leading the division for so many years that we were chasing and we really couldn't hunt down. And sure enough, the one year that we did finally just track him down was when, you know, Vladdy switched teams and put our jersey on and and was a part of so many big games playing against the Angels that year. Uh, what, what was it that his mom would make, like beans and rice? What, what was the meal? Oh, man, beans, rice, goat, lamb. I mean, everything. She had everything in there, man. She, it came every single day. Um, so she was really... She was like almost like our unofficial mascot, man. I mean, she uh, she fed us. She was, you know, you know. My, I have a ton of uh, early memories of Vladdy Junior. Um, you know, being around being around our team at that point, um, just just like his dad, not doing nothing. All he wanted to do was hit in the cage. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it was interesting. Like I remember one time, one thing about Vladdy too is Vladdy was a uh, he was an old schooler in, in, in the good sense, like. Everything that we do in there was was all about trying to to win a ball game. I know that sounds obvious, but one example is you know whenever we would win a game, we'd have you know the ramp up from the dugout, that big ramp up into our clubhouse. And by the time we got into the top of the ramp, there were people from our clubhouse, starting pitcher who was out with ice on his shoulder, other pitchers who were out, guys who were hurt, training staff, clubhouse staff, and they're all giving us knuckles when we come in. And then the music starts playing. Well, I think it was early in the season, and we had just lost. And when we lost, it's the opposite. You know, you don't have, and every team's the same. You don't have anyone waiting in line to give you props. You get, you basically come back into a silent clubhouse. And basically, the point of that is, it isn't just to lick your wounds after a loss. It's just that you just want to be respectful. Usually, if you have a loss, there's somebody on your team that had a rough moment in that game. 
you know, that's usually the case. So you just kind of want to give that guy a chance to kind of decompress a little bit, keep it quiet in there. Then at that, at that point, you play so many games, everybody loosens up and kind of refocuses to tomorrow. But I remember one time Vladdy Jr. was, Vladdy was ahead of me in the line, kind of come up after a loss. And Vladdy Jr. was there giving high fives. I remember Vladdy just kind of gave him this look like, we don't do that after a loss. And I remember Vladdy Jr. kind of put his hand down, kind of put his head down, walked back in. And that was like, I can, I can only imagine the amount of lessons that Vladdy taught him, not just the obvious stuff about how to be a good hitter, but what it means to compete, what it means to do everything you can to win at this level. So just another example of what a great teammate Vladdy was. So I, I was going to ask you this a little later, but since you, you brought up the, the father-son dynamic, what, what was it like for you while being a dad while you were still playing? Uh, and, and I guess you can take this any direction you'd like, because you know, whether it's the time commitment or, or whatever the case is, but... I imagine that there, there's some benefits to it. I know guys love having their kids remember when they're playing, but I also am sure there are things that are, are negatives about you know being able to fulfill your responsibilities as a dad. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think for me, my kids were young. Um, my oldest son was born in 2005, so when I retired, I think he was about you know eight years old. Uh, so he had just basically started school a couple years before that. Uh, my my youngest boy was basically oh past one, and my middle son was I think he was three or four when I retired. So my sons don't really have much of a memory, and that was that was by design too. You know, a lot of times I see kids who are you know that age, super super young, and they're hanging out in clubhouses after after ball games, and it's eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, and the kids are still in there, and that's cool. I, I I'm never going to judge how anybody raises their kids. That's their business, but. You know, for me and my wife, our, our priority was making sure that our kids knew that they were going to keep on their routines, their schedules didn't revolve around mine. So my kids were never, you never, no, no one ever saw my kids in the clubhouse after a game. They were, they were home asleep. And um, that was pretty much it. My kids like baseball now. They like talking baseball now. But as far as my, you know, I don't think they have really many intimate moments of me as a player when they were kids. I think now it's more of a matter of they kind of relive some of the stuff they see on, they might see on TV. But, um, you know, I don't think, like, again, it was by design where we didn't really have anything, you know, specifically involved with them hanging out with me in a locker room unless it was after a day game. You you said something, Michael, I I think it was a couple years ago. Maybe it was it was when Adrian Beltre retired or, or one of the, the, the ceremonies that, that took place. I don't remember if it was 3,000 hits or uh, the jersey stuff, but you, you made a comment. You were asked, I think, what, what stood out to you about Adrian, and you talked about, the the joy he had while he played the game and that you had the same joy but maybe he showed it like he wasn't afraid to smile and and you you wish that you maybe as a player uh were more free and willing to do that i, I don't want to misquote or i, I don't do yeah. you, okay do you remember at all what i'm saying or am i totally making yeah, this yeah 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 i think um for me you know i, I there were times i love playing baseball and there were times where i would literally like kind of fight back smiles like in a big moment just because I always wanted to have this idea that I was, you know, I didn't want to get too ahead of myself. I didn't want to baseball such a long, grueling sport. It's really this war of attrition. And the only time I really let myself go was in postseason games because that's all bets are off right there, and you're really trying to show as much joy as you possibly can. But for me, you know, I, I really wanted to make sure that it was always really a, a one-step-in-front-of-the-other kind of mentality. I, I never really wanted to stop and smell the roses because I felt like if I was doing that, then – I was giving somebody else, kind of opening the door for somebody else to pass me up a little bit. And I wish, going back, if I could do a couple things differently, which is really easy to do when you retire, to think about the things you could have done better. 
I wish I had taken the time just to kind of just let it all cut loose a little bit more. And if I felt any joy, just to not feel, not feel like I couldn't show it. And um, that was one of the things I really loved about Adrian. He just really kind of loved playing, loved playing baseball, but um, was and was super competitive and super passionate, but um, never fought himself when it came time to showing how much how much fun he was having out there. So Emily Jones always says how you were one of the hardest guys to crack. And, and, and I only knew you as a player, just as anyone else as as a fan and have only gotten to know you as a person post playing, but, and, and I don't think you're a different person, but the, the, the guy I know now, whether it's, you know, the, the personality on social media or just, you know, the personality in, in person and actual conversation is different than the guy that I, I, I saw, as a player, you know, you were very, and you kind of just talked about it, but you were very, like, serious or focused or whatever. Uh, I guess was that also by design when you were done playing, uh, just kind of opening up and, and showing off the, I guess, the various dimensions of, of your personality, not to not to get way too profound or anything. I'm just, like, no, that's it, fine. It, it, like you're, you're, again, I don't want to say you're a different person, but, like, the, the personality is more out there. Yeah, I think that the that I was always that way. I just wasn't that way with the press. And right. you know, usually whenever I was answering questions after a game, I always assumed that those questions were going to be in print the following day. And if we we're in the middle of a of a series with somebody, I wasn't going to do anything that was going to you know be bulletin board material for another team. You know, I was a big believer in kind of letting sleeping dogs lie, and I didn't want to really want to get to a point where I was giving anybody any extra motivation. Um, if another team deserved any kind of credit, I was going to give it to them. Uh, and I wanted my answers uh, again by design to be as vanilla as possible. I was gonna, I was gonna do my. I felt like I had a responsibility to talk to the press just because I had to be respectful of the fact that they have a job to do. But it wasn't my responsibility to give them a ton of a ton of material either. My responsibility was just to answer the question. So um, I wanted to give the most most vague vanilla answer I possibly could. Make sure that I was supportive of my teammates, complimentary of the players, guys I'm playing against, um, and do my what I felt were my responsibilities with the press without giving him uh you know giving him too many avenues to go down I guess. I uh, one thing that stands out is you're not afraid to have an opinion and to voice it even if it's against the grain uh and and you know with the platform you have there are so many people who have a similar platform who are are so concerned about not rubbing just one person the wrong way but you're not afraid Sometimes to tweet something that you really believe in. How important is that to you? The just being true to yourself in that regard when when it's appropriate and, and when the time's right. Yeah, I think um, you know there were there are times even um, on social media, and I probably backed off that you know recently just because I feel like uh, I'm back at a point now where I, I think I want my opinions to kind of be my own a little bit more. But when I do feel like that, it is necessary for me to speak out, not because I have something to say. But maybe to give uh, some other folks that don't maybe have a larger platform um, an opportunity to have somebody else that's potentially speaking for them or helping them out, I think that's important to do. Um, I love, I, I kind of love it when I, you know, when I can give, give an, a, an opinion that might be a 50-50 opinion. You might like it, you might not. Um, that's fine. Um, and that was the same way when I played. I think that, again, I never really signed up for the whole, you know, leadership thing. I think that was something that people kind of said it publicly that put on me, but when it came time to my time with my teammates, I was just kind of trying to be myself. 
And if I have a, you know something that's well thought out and I think it's valuable and I think it's important to say, then I feel like, you know, I'm going to say it respectfully, but I'm going to say it. I'm always fascinated how people make significant decisions, tough decisions, important decisions. What, what was the process like for you when you ultimately decided to step away from baseball? Well, it was 100% a family decision. Um, you know, I was um, – it was tough. It was really, really difficult. Because I think that the one biggest – not regret, that's the wrong word, but one of the things I wish I could have back in my career is I really wish I could have seen how my career would have played out if I would have stayed at second base. Um, it was my, my best defensive position, and my career really kind of took a unique path in that sense because my best defensive position, my best opportunity to make my – my offense and defense kind of come together and be the two-way player I always wanted to be was at second base. And I only got to do that for three years out of my career. And at the end of my career, when the Dodgers gave me an opportunity to say, when they wanted to resign me, and they said, listen, we're going to give you the opportunity to win the second base job. I mean, my goodness, that's, that was music to my ears. And, but I was also at kind of a different place, too. You know, I was at the end of my career, maybe the opportunity to go out there and uh, who knows what I would have been like defensively at 37 years old? Who knows what I've been the guy I was, you know, the last time I had played the infield or second base at that point was, I think, 11 years before that. So, but either way, the, you know, the opportunity to do it was, you know, something that I was potentially really, really excited about, but it was 100% a family decision. Um, you know, my kids were, you know, at a point where I feel like they really needed me home, especially my oldest son. I think that um, it's really a risky thing to do. And again, this is just my opinion. Um, when you're away from your family for so long, especially your oldest ones, I think there's a certain point with your kids where if you don't get an opportunity to kind of like get in there and, you know, get, get down, get your hands dirty with them, you kind of miss the boat. You know, if you come back and they're 13 years old and they haven't seen you very much and you come in and try and kind of tell them what's what, that's kind of tough to do. Um, and I felt like as a parent, I'd be shortchanging my kids if I kind of did that. I wanted to make sure that I was there in, in their in their formative years when they were young, um, not just showed up when they're you know when I showed them how to drive a car. You know that to me wasn't what being a dad was about. So and everything from you know my family aspect to the way I my body was feeling. It just was the right move for me to to shut it down. And I was probably one of the rare ones where my goal as a player was always maybe to step out a hair early rather than a year a hair late. Um, so. I felt like it was a good time for me. I don't want to, you know, usually when you retire, pretty much everybody knows they're on the backside of that mountain. I just didn't want to wait till I get down to the very end. I don't want to, I don't want to wait around and see what that looked like. Michael, I've heard you talk about this before, but I'm curious, how much pride do you take in being Mexican American? Yeah, man. I mean, that's, I think about who, you know, just like everyone else does, everyone has a backstory about who they are, where they came from and what their earliest memories are. And for me, that's hanging out with my family on my mom's side. My dad's side, for the most part, was um, living in a different state. They were in Nevada. They are in Carson City, Nevada. So I, I loved them. I loved seeing them. I just didn't get to see them as often. So my mom's family, um, you know, Mexican-American family, we were together all the time, whether it's a birthday, first communion, a baptism, uh, <laughs> everything. Um, you know, the first time you took a couple of steps, another party we have. I mean, it's literally a reason to have a party all the time with them. So my first, my, my fondest memories are, are being with my family. So, I mean, I do have a, you know, a strong level of pride on, on who I am and what my family has done to make sacrifices to give me a chance to, to do what I wanted to do. 
and that's very important to me. So, yeah, I, I, I do have a ton of pride in, in who I am and who my family is and, and who we all are now.